We're moving forward with our, our series of our sermons as we look at the words uh, uh, from the cross. And as we move into today's text, if you find yourself in the book of John, chapter 19 is where we're going to look at. Verse 28 is, is the beginning of our text. I think we all know what it is to be thirsty. I mean, you've got parched lips, you've got what they call cotton mouth, you're feeling dehydrated. I mean, it can come from working out and you just expanded all of your energy and, 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 or maybe you're outside on a hot summer day and, and you have just sweated like crazy and, and now you're dehydrated from all that. Or maybe people, I, I've noticed when I've been around the hospitals and they're coming out of surgery and they're just, I mean, they're parched. They are thirsty and somebody's always wanting to drink. It, it, it doesn't matter where it comes from. I think it's part of our humanity because we become thirsty just for all kinds of reasons. We have now come to this fifth phrase and in the final words of Jesus from the cross, this fifth phrase is really the shortest one of all the phrases that he makes. In the Greek language, it is only one word. We translate it to, which in English it says, I thirst. Matthew doesn't record this statement. Uh, Luke, he makes no mentions of this statement in his gospel either. And Mark, he, he's silent about it as well. But John, for whatever reason, John pulls us in, and I think we'll see why in a little bit why he has to make mention of this statement. More than any of the other Gospels, John is keyed in on trying to describe to us the deity of Jesus, wanting us to know that he is God in the flesh, that he is the Almighty put on flesh and is with us and among us. John, in his writing of the Gospel, he wanted to show us that, that Jesus and God are really one and the same. So let's look how John starts off his gospel message in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. Now we know that the Word is Jesus. And he says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those are his statements as he opens up his gospel message. And yet the Holy Spirit, by his divine inspiration, has John write in this little word as Jesus is upon the cross, I thirst. And yet when I think about God, that's not something that I would think about. Does God get hungry? Is he ever thirsty? I mean, he, he is all-sufficient. He, he doesn't have a need for anything, right? I mean, that's what we understand when we really dig in and discover who he is. So why would he have this deficiency at this point? I thirst. That's not a quality that I think of when I think of God. So... If you would, turn with me to John chapter 18, or chapter 19. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, now there's this parenthetical statement John tosses in here. Jesus made this statement, why? To fulfill the scripture. I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Someone once said that the closer you get to Jesus, the better you'll know his thirst. Now, 
that afternoon, as Jesus hung suspended upon the cross, he spoke very few words, but the words that he spoke, they carried with them some great significance in what he wanted to say. So this morning we're going to examine this little phrase that he makes here. It's 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 unique statement, and that one we would not expect him to make, but one we would ourselves make, and probably have made over the course of our lives in many different reasons. I'm thirsty. So what is it that this cry from Jesus on the cross? What does it convey to us? What does it inform us of? Why does Jesus endure his thirst? And after all, he is the creator of the universe. I mean, with his words, the oceans came into existence, right? And with his words, he, he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. It is through God and through the words of Christ that, that the Red Sea and the waters there were parted. It was from the rock in a desert that all of a sudden a water fountain began to grow that would feed and, 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 and supply water for, for the millions that were traveling. Water held no power over Jesus. He even walked on it. And he caused it to stop in its storm. He is, however, the living water. And yet, the first thing I want us to know is that his cry enables us to see his humanity. Yes, he is God in the flesh, but that's the thing. We put that word flesh. He has humanity that is embracing him at this point. He entered the world of human suffering and shame when he was born nearly 2,000 years ago in that little bitty town of Bethlehem. And although he was fully divine, he was also fully human too. Now, I can't really express that or or describe how it is because I have no clue. It is something that he and he alone was capable to do. Jesus somehow became one with our humanity. And there's the uniqueness in this. And the Bible affirms to us the fullness of his human nature as well as his divine. For example, the Bible teaches us that Jesus had a human body and his body had human limitations as well. He was just like everybody else. He was born into this world. And so we see there in Luke chapter 2 that the Bible says about Mary that, that she gave birth to her firstborn son. So he was born as we are. He came in as this little infant, this tiny baby. Jesus then grows in, in his human stature and through his childhood into adulthood, and, and, and just like every other child does. Moreover, Luke tells us in, in Luke 2.52 that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and man. Jesus became tired just as you and I become tired. And I'll tell you what, I know there's a bunch of fellows that are probably going to fall asleep while I'm speaking this morning. All right, they had a rough weekend out in the windy, uh, cool air this weekend out camping. But, you know, Jesus himself was tired. I mean, we read in John 4, 6 that Jesus was wearied as he was from his journey who was sitting beside a well and it was about the sixth hour and it took place in Samaria he, he he got tired he was exhausted Jesus became hungry
I mean, he, he, he had a hunger, and I think I probably would too, after spending 40 days in a wilderness, after spending two days in a wilderness, but we ate. You know, but 40 days in a wilderness fasting, then the scripture tells us that he was hungry. And Matthew 4 2, and after fasting 40 days, Days and 40 nights, what? He was hungry. So he has the, the aspect of humanity upon him that he had not had as the glorification of who he really is. As God, he took on human flesh. Jesus was... supper table he's lost a lot of blood and his body was becoming weak so weak that on the road out to the place of the skull Golgotha they had to get another man to help him carry his cross because he had the appearance that he couldn't make it. And here in our text, we see that Jesus became thirsty. For when he was on the cross, he says, I thirst. Do you know that the human body is somewhere around two-thirds water and that our body absorbs matter in fact our body absorbs cold water better than it does hot water um, a few things about your body by the time you are 70 years old this was amazing to me by the time you are 70 or years old you will have probably consumed somewhere around one and a half million gallons of water <laughs> wow right right all right also studies have have shown us that water consumption catch this water consumption Consumption can decrease fat deposits, and that water is a natural appetite suppressant. Who's going to have water for lunch today? Right? I mean, it, we think about it. Water is this unique thing about us. Here's 2% of your, of your body's water supply. your energy level drops by about 20%. If you have about a 10% decrease in your body's water supply, you lose your ability and move about. 
And if you lose 20% of your body's water supply, you're dead. We need water. Jesus, in his humanity, needed to be refreshed. Life in it, and it ceased to function just as ours does when it dies. Jesus was dying. Now, all these passages that we just kind of looked at briefly, they, they all show us that, that, that Jesus is like us in the human form as far as that is possible. It, it was like ours in every respect. Because he became one with us in humanity by taking on flesh and blood. Father Damien was a, a priest that became famous for his willingness to serve a leper colony um, in, in the Kalawao village in Molokai, Hawaii. Um, <clears throat> he moved to the village after he had heard that he had tuberculosis. So, you know, yeah, let's go do everything we can, right? So he did, and he, he was there to be quarantined with this leper colony, and for 16 years he lived among them in their midst, and he learned to speak their language, and he bandaged their wounds, and he, he cared for them, and he embraced their bodies with his touch, and he, he preached to the hearts so that they would embrace Jesus Christ. And he organized schools and bands and choirs. And he built homes for them so the leopards could have a place of shelter. And with his own two hands, he built 2,000 coffins so that they could be buried with dignity. Slowly it was said that Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place to die. Because Father Damien offered them the hope of Christ. And he showed them that love through his own life. But there was a problem. You see, Father Damien wasn't careful about keeping his distance from the dreaded disease. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his finger in the poi bowls as well with them as they were eating. He shared 
shared his pipe with them. He bandaged their wounds and didn't wash his hands immediately after. He got close. And because he was so willing to get close, the people loved him. One Sunday morning, about 11 years into his ministry with them, he stood up to preach his sermon. And he began his sermon with these two words. We lepers. You see, he had become like them. He wasn't just helping them. Now, Father Damien was one of them. And, and from that day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was also in their skin. For he had chosen not only to live with them, but he had chosen to die with them as well. And so they were in this together. At the age of 49, after 16 years of ministry with them, Father Damien, he lost his fight but the leprosy. One day, God came to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ and he began by saying we lepers he took on flesh and blood so that he could relate to us he dipped his hand in the bowl with sinners their wounds and brought them healing and yet it was by his touch when the others said oh don't touch them and he died the death of humanity But someone might ask, why did Jesus do all this? Come, one of us. He, he didn't have to do that, did he? I mean, he, he really he could have done it his any other way he chose, but why would he choose to become like us in this? And why would he then, in his own last moments of life, cry out, out, I'm thirsty, when he should have been able to relieve himself of that thirst. You see, Jesus became with one of us, and he suffered in order to become our substitute. Jesus 
suffered and died so that he could take the full wrath of God upon himself that should rightly fall on our shoulders. Yet that's his love. You see, by his death, he shielded us from the eternal death that is rightly due us. The second thing I think is this. His cry, it, it, it evidences his extreme humiliation. Would we remember that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that he is the, the creator of all nature, of the heavens and the earth, who could feed multitudes of people with just a little bit of bread and some fish, when, when he could supply this banquet with wine that was the best wine possible from just speaking the words over water. When we remember that this acknowledgement of thirst was made in the presence of his enemies who were mocking him and his persecutors, when we remember that, that it was Jesus that he, that he deigned to accept even this bitter, sour wine, which was to relieve his thirst for a moment, we cannot help but be impressed by the depth of humiliation in which he stooped. He chose to put himself here for us. You see, Christ not only for us, and in that death, he was rendered perfect through this suffering the scripture tells us so it was for this purpose that he entered this world and it is for this purpose that he remained on the cross when he could have come down at any moment philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 paul says this to us he says we because of what jesus has done for us he says have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, yet did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself to become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How humiliating! I mean, if I were God and I were going to come into the world, I would come in and as the king of the world, wouldn't you? I mean, I mean Superman, right? No. He came in into the most humble and lowly circumstances to be a servant of men. Matter of fact, in, in, in part of his conversations with people, he says, you don't guys don't get it. says the son of man did not come into this world to be served but to serve and to be a ransom for many how humiliating it is for him to take off his glory and put on our flesh but not just that to put on the flesh of one who is going to be submissive to all those around him to see that their needs are met before his need is that's our Savior. The author of Hebrews 
writes this in the second chapter, beginning in verse 7 through 10. As he speaks to God, he says, You made him a little lower uh, than the angels. You, you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, he says, In putting everything in subjection to him, you left nothing outside his control. But at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. And so he says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, it's Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. had to suffer. And the prophet understood that. He speaks to us about a suffering servant, but we don't look for this suffering servant. We look for one who's conquering, don't we? How much more humiliation do you think he could endure? But let me tell you this. His agony it was by his choice. He chose to be humiliated before the men that lay there at his feet, cursing him, laughing at him, mocking him, spitting upon him. He chose to humble himself so that you can be glorified, that you can be exalted. And in his choice of humbling himself and putting himself through that despicable death, he was perfected in his suffering. God had determined before the foundation of the world that Jesus would suffer and die for the sins of every one of us. And only through his suffering would we be able to find the grace that he would offer to us. I mean, what a great humiliation it must have cost him. Because he loves you. I think the third thing is this. That his cry, it expresses the value of his sacrifice. You see, that very cry was the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy, and John, he, he forbids us to ignore it. That's why he throws in that parenthetical statement. He wants us to know when Jesus says, I thirst, it's because he is fulfilling Scripture that prophesied about what would happen with the Messiah. And so he wants us to see this. This, this cry is just not mere coincidence. It's intentional. Jesus was very specific about the words he used on the cross. And in these two words, I thirst, he fulfills yet one more prophecy about who he is. All things are now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so he's able to say, as we'll look at again down the road, it's finished. You see, Jesus came to do the will of his Father. He came to fulfill each and every prophecy that had been given through the centuries about who he would be and really what would even be concerning this crucifixion and his death there. I mean, there was no escape from his thirst at Calvary. It was all within the scope of God's divine plan. So Psalm 69, 21 is this passage, and it says this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst 
they gave me sour wine to drink. And so all of this follows along with what Jesus has been saying from the very beginning. He said in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, we saw that little bit of a struggle there in the Garden of Gethsemane just before this day is taking place. And Jesus had had that conversation with his Father in heaven. He says, if there's any other way that I don't have to go to the cross and I don't have to die for their sins, if there's any other way, can this cup be removed from me? But not as my will, but as your will be done. It's the same thing he's been saying all along. He came into this world from heaven to do his Father's will. It is a Father's will that he would be offered up as a sacrifice for us. Peter makes this statement in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, when he's preaching that very first sermon there on the day of Pentecost, you know, 50 days later after, after the Passover, and Jesus has now ascended into heaven. And he says, this Jesus that was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So what's he saying there? Jesus was delivered up to the cross because it was the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. God wanted this to happen. He says, though as God's foreknowledge and his plan, what happens? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, our Savior. You see, in all things... And through his anguish, he paid the price by which we would be redeemed. So keep in mind that Jesus is the living word of God. Can you imagine knowing all of this that would transpire and then going through with it? That's Jesus. He knew what would take place on every step that he took down that narrow street in Jerusalem out to that hillside to be crucified. He knew probably even the name and the thoughts of that soldier who was about to drive the nails in his hands. He understood beforehand those who would stand at the foot of his cross and laugh at him and mock him. And command him to prove himself. And yet, he went there. You see, Scripture is needed to be fulfilled. And Jesus did that for you and me. And he completely and entirely fulfilled the Scriptures in every aspect, even down to this little statement. I thirst so that the sour wine would be offered up to him. Remember, he humbled himself, and by giving up his place and glory in heaven in order to fit into the skin of mankind and humanity so that we could find our redemption. And how humiliating it must have been to hang upon that cross. Yet, his love kept him there because he sees you as worth it. His sacrifice and the value of what it was going to be for him was all worth it for you. The value, a lot of people might not dare to die for you, but Jesus did. 
You see, and in the heart of Christ, the value of his sacrifice was well worth our redemption. Even though we can't understand why he would, he would choose to do such a thing, considering our fallen nature. But yet, to him, no price was too high to pay. And so he paid it all. The fourth thing I think I notice in this little statement is this. His cry engages us in ministry as well. You see, as Jesus cried out, I thirst, someone noticed, hey, there's a jar of this sour wine over here that soldiers got. So they went and they got it and they, they took a sponge and they dipped it in it, put it on a, a hyssop branch and they hung it up to him so that he could quench his thirst at that moment, ministering to him in his dying days. In the final moments of the breath within his life, somebody recognizes amidst all the crowd of people who are jeering and everything else, they're going to stand out and say, let me help him. And what did they get from the others? I'll leave him alone. Let Elijah save him. He's crying out to Elijah. Let him save himself. But he teaches us that we need to minister, we need to serve. Dr. David uh, Terasaka, he points this out as a medical doctor. He, he, he says, in this moment, from this medical perspective, he says, having suffered severe blood loss from his numerous beatings, and thus in a dehydrated state, Jesus, in one of his final statements, says, I thirst. Now, he was offered two drinks there that day, all right, while he was on the cross. But the first drink he refused. You remember that drink that he refused? He's, the doctor says it was drugged wine mixed with myrrh, and he chose to face death without a clouded mind. So the first drink, they're offering him up to him. It's got a, a medication in it to kind of numb your senses, to, to take away the pain. And Jesus refused to have the pain removed so that he would endure it with a full conscience. But the second one isn't that kind of drink. This is a drink that the boys are having down at the foot of the cross, just enjoying their day. Now, a lot of times, as Alfred Edersham writes this in his History of Jesus, he says it was, it was a merciful Jewish practice to give to those who were led to their execution a, a, a very strong draught of wine mixed with myrrh so as to deaden uh, the consciousness and he says, usually this was carried out by the women that were there along the cross as well. Now the draught was offered to Jesus when he reached Golgotha, but having tasted it, he wasn't going to drink any more, but he didn't want anything about that. He would not meet death even in the sternest and fiercest moods and conquer by submitting to the full effect of what it might do. He wanted to be fully aware of everything that he was doing. Now the second drink... Edersheim says, which he accepted moments before his death, is described as a wine vinegar. And he says two points are important to notice. First off, the drink was given on the stalk of a hyssop plant. Now, he says, remember the events that just had preceded this? It was the feast of what? Passover. All right? And so William Barclay says this, during the feast of Passover, hyssop was used to apply blood to the doorpost of the Passover lamb on the wooden doorpost of the Jewish people. It's interesting that the end of the hyssop stalk pointed to the blood of the perfect lamb, which was applied to the wooden cross for the salvation of mankind. 
Mm. In addition, uh, Edersheim says that the wine vinegar is a product of fermentation which made from grape juice and yeast. So the word that is used here literally means that which is soured. So they give him a drink of that which is soured. And it's related to a Hebrew term for that which is leavened. Now, you understand this, yeast or leaven is a biblical symbol for sin. All right, so when Jesus took this drink, this drink which was leavened or soured, it was therefore kind of symbolic of his taking the sins of the world into his body, finalizing his sacrifice. You see, he came to suffer to the bitter end, the penalty of our sin. And taking upon himself our sin, we now can find redemption, forgiveness. Jesus took up his cross, which really wasn't his cross. He took up the cross that should have been on all of our shoulders. And he died in our place. But he chose to do that. Now, how did this work in the aspect of ministering for him and to him and to others? Everything Jesus was doing was demonstrating how we should serve and love one another. When asked what's the greatest commandment, he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he says, but hang on. There's another one that's just like it, and it's just as important. To love your neighbor as yourself. And he lived that out in his demonstration of life day after day. And he tells us the manner in which we serve and love one another demonstrates to others how much we really love God. So Jesus made this statement in Matthew chapter 25 as he's telling this story about things. And he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, beginning in verse 31... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly... I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So how do we satisfy the thirst of Jesus today? How do we minister to him in his hour of need? We minister to those around us. And in so doing, we serve him. By meeting their needs, we minister to Him. 
we quench his thirst because he thirsts for our souls. There's a statue in Denmark. Matter of fact, it's a statue of Jesus Christ, and it was made by Carl Albert Bertel Thorvaldsen. All right. He lived from 1770 to 1844. There's a uniqueness about this the statue and the story of it. I mean, it's really interesting as I was reading uh, this week. It's the original stand, statue stands behind the altar at the Protestant cathedral there in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark. Uh, Bertel Thorburn said he made the form of Christ in clay with the arms outstretched. Now, but they were raised high in gesturing his command, all right? And his head was held high in triumph, and he left the figure to harden for a few days, and when he came back to his studio, he found that it had changed. It had rained in the humidity in the air, had changed the look of his clay statue. The arms that were once lifted high and the head that was lifted up as well had now fallen to the position that you see on the picture right now. Thorvaldsen felt his statue of Christ was beyond repaired, so he grabbed a hammer and he was about to demolish it when he just couldn't do it. And so with remorse, he just, he just fled. He just left. And for some time, he couldn't go back to his studio, to that room where that statue stood. But finally, he went back one day with a friend. When they opened the door, the two of them just kind of stood there in awe. It's bathed in light, and the lowered arms no longer depicted what he thought to be defeat. They saw them in truth, God's response and his compassion and his sympathetic arms that were circling the sorrowful and the needy in this world. The head was now bowed, almost with, he says, a contrite countenance saying, I understand your travail. Something had transpired after he had fashioned it through that event of the, the moisture and leaving it alone for a while. That all of a sudden, it, it's like it breathed a new meaning into his statue from being that which is victorious and, and, and celebrating to this of a compassionate Savior. Now, the statue is ten and a half feet tall, and it's made of what artists call heroic size, and it's placed on a pedestal. Now, on the base of the pedestal, he's put these words coming from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come unto me. Now, that was not his original intent of this masterpiece. He didn't see it as if Jesus were speaking that while he was on earth. But yet, you probably can't see it, but there is a place in his side where the spear went, and in his hands, his feet, there are the marks of the crucifixion. 
And those nail prints remind us of his eternal love. And we see now the inviting hands. And from every place in the church, you can see those hands. But really, you can't see the eyes unless you're in a position where you're before that statue kneeling down and looking up. Really significant. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, Jesus thirsted. is so that you will find salvation in Him. He hungers and He thirsts for your righteousness, which only He can give you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that He went to that cross and all the humiliation that it bore before Him. We know that, Father, it was rightfully our cross to bear. And yet His love, Your love, Father, it quenches our thirst. And You've asked us to come. You've asked us to recognize the sacrifice that was offered on our behalf. Father, may we introduce people to a spring of water that brings life that's everlasting, that will well up within them for all eternity, that they'll never thirst anymore. That they'll see that it's only through Him that all of the the missing parts of our life, that they can be found and be full. Help us to share that truth with those around us that they might see the wonderful gospel message of salvation of Jesus that he offers to each and every one of us. It's in his name we pray.